crickets. Crickets. John the Baptist ate what? Locusts, but... No, friends. So, friends, would you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4. Our focus is going to be specifically on verses uh, 25, 26, and 27. But I want to give you a little context, so we're going to kind of blow it out to verses starting at verse 17. And once you have it, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And uh, before we read his word, we are going to pray and ask for God's help and his blessing as we read his word together. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, this is your word. But our hearts often are, are tricky and sometimes confused and that we often misunderstand your truth, or sometimes we deflect your truth, but you mean it for us, and you, you aim it at uh, the bullseye, bullseye of our own hearts. So God, would you give, send your spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds and open the, the door of our heart and let the floodlights of your truth shine in so that we may behold the wonderful, the amazing things that you have for us in your word. So speak to us then, O Lord, by your word and by your spirit. Help us to receive, to hear, and to respond, and to embrace your truth. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of Christ speaks to us like this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and given themselves, is there some confusion out there? Chapter 4. Sorry, 17. I know, I I was giving you the background. Here we go. Starting at 19 now. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greed to, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having said all that, therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and and sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There's a lot right there to, to handle this morning. 
But my friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if you have not noticed, we are in the midst of a culture that is perpetually filled with conflict. Have you noticed? If you didn't notice last year, we pray that uh, maybe God will open your eyes right now because I don't want to go back and repeat last year. But we live in a culture that is just perpetually filled with conflict after conflict after conflict. And this week is a stunning look at the, the life through the lens of conflict and, and how to realize how much conflict is in the, the everyday part of our lives. Our world is characterized by conflict. There's a constant battle going on. And in the midst of this culture of, of sharp words, heated arguments, long-term silent treatments, which is also conflict, right? Physical altercation. Jesus says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that contrast is huge. In the midst of this raging sea that we are all feeling on a day-to-day -day kind of basis, Jesus calls for an island of peace. A place where, according to 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. A place where Love never ends. So we're in the middle of this, uh, this mini-series on relationships and how we have a tendency to sabotage our relationships because of indwelling sin, because of things that we don't, we don't always notice about ourselves. And I've noticed this as a church and even outside the church that this is a critical thing that we have to address. How do we look at our relationships because the Bible talks a lot about how we should conduct ourselves with one another, insiders and outsiders. Last week, we looked at the subject of anger, and we discovered that the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. The previous week, we, looked at, we learned that God even resists the, the proud, but he gives grace to the, the humble, right? This week, we are going to be looking at the topic of how to be countercultural when we look at conflict. Because the Bible calls, calls every single follower of Jesus to be countercultural when it comes to conflict. I, I recommended that we, you, you get this resource. The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It is a phenomenal resource. And honestly, a place where I'm constantly going back when I'm, I'm looking at how do, we, how do I shape this whole conversation about relationships. In this book, he, he describes the contrast between the world and what the, the church is to be like. He contrasts it like this. Peacemakers are people who breathe grace. They draw continually on the, the goodness and the power of Jesus Christ. And then 
They bring his love, mercy, forgiveness, strength, and wisdom to the conflicts of daily life. Now, they bring whose love? His. Okay? His love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his strength, his wisdom. And that, I think, is critical to understand. It's not your love. (laughs) It's not your wisdom. It's not your strength. Because I, I know myself well enough. My love is weak. And my love is sometimes divided. It's selfish. So this requires a believer to know Christ. To know Him deeply and to know His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, His strength, His wisdom. And that's what we bring into our relationships. He goes on to say this. God delights. uh, if, If this was in your Bible or if you wrote this down, that's a word to circle. God delights to breathe His grace through peacemakers and use them to dissipate anger, improve understanding, promote justice, and encourage repentance and reconciliation. Does that characterize you? If some of you go, yeah, we got a sermon for you today. Because the reality is it probably doesn't characterize you. Does it, does it describe your family? Is there a relationship you wish sounded more like this? Imagine with me what life would look like if we could learn how to have less conflict with people or when there is conflict, we know how to handle it in a gospel-centered, loving kind of way that is filled with grace. Could you imagine a church like that? I pray that is true for us, where grace is just, you just go, wow, this is just a, this is difficult, but this is a Holy Spirit kind of moment. He's working in this this tension, and he's changing my heart and your heart, our hearts. That is what I pray for, that our relationships are characterized by peace. And that is God's desire for those who know Jesus. He wants to show the world the powerful and the practical difference that the gospel actually brings into this world. My friends, the gospel is powerful. And there's practical implications of the gospel when it collides with our lives. When we are transformed by the gospel It has practical implications that change neighborhoods, that change relationships, that change marriages. So this morning, we are going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, and you are going to see three relational commitments that we have got to be committing to if we want to be peacemakers. Because the reality is, unresolved conflict is relationship a relationship's barrier. So Ephesians 4 is, is all about the way that Jesus makes people new. That's why I started in verse 17, even though maybe I didn't communicate that very clearly. 
Jesus makes people new in a very practical kind of way. The Apostle Paul calls believers to live this new Jesus-centered reality in this way. In the beginning of chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He he later on goes to call uh, believers to put on the new self. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt with its deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the new, brand new self that is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, when you, you, when you were saved, when you responded to the grace, you have been given new clothes. None of you, when you go shopping for clothes, men, just ask your wives about this later, but when you go shopping for new clothes, you don't put them over the old, smelly, worn-out stuff, do you? No, you, you take off the old. You throw it away, and you put on the new. And that's what we are called to do. Now, verse 25 marks a, a transition in explaining this, this new self, the who we are, this new reality, this new calling, and how it should be expressed specifically in relationships. And there's three commitments, like I said, in this countercultural kind of life. Here's the first one. I must be honest. Okay? It's very interesting here that Paul first identifies that central to a good God-honoring, countercultural kind of relationship is the importance of honesty or truth-telling. The command is straightforward. If you kind of look at verse 25, since you uh, put away lying, speak the truth with others. Since you've taken that off, now... Speak the truth with others. Why? Because you belong to each other. So I belong to you, and you belong to me. Therefore, it is imperative. Since we have put off the old self, we put on the new self, we've been adopted into this family, we belong to each other. So stop lying, be honest. In other words, Jesus-centered relationships do not thrive in the absence of of a basic commitment to truth-telling. The first conflict between God and human beings began, why? Because of a lie. The devil, in in Genesis chapter 3, lied to Eve about the consequences and the payoff of the choice to disobey God's commandment not to eat from the tree. So the first sin committed and the first conflict between God and human beings was rooted in the departure from truth. And and there, listen, we all know this. There is no real fellowship 
without a foundation of truth. Right? The truth-telling is a key building block for God-honoring relationships. And the absence of truth creates more conflict. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, listen, what makes fellowship possible is trust. Mutual trust, mutual reliance, a feeling that you can trust one another and therefore you can speak freely and openly to one another. But the moment the element of lying comes in, fellowship is destroyed. You are no longer free. You do not know how much you can believe or what you can believe. And you do not know how much you can trust the other person. Lying destroys fellowship. So dealing with conflict from a biblical perspective requires that you are committed to the truth. You must be willing to be honest about the problem, willing to lovingly share with a person that what was what was hurt, who has hurt you, and willing to deal honestly, honestly about your own contribution to the problem. Friends, in every conflict, it is not a single-sided thing. Hear that. Thank you, Sue, for the amen, because I don't think the rest of you understood it. Uh, amen. <laughs> so a lack of a commitment to honesty will not create an environment for God-honoring relationships. So it has to start with me. I must be honest. I have, to, I have to start with me. Then it leads to the, the second commitment that we have. I must control my anger. You see that in verse 26, right? And this is kind of a challenging passage. As I kind of read through that initially, I kind of felt like this, man, there's, it almost felt like there's a, uh, a command for anger. And it's probably not commanding anger, even though the translation could seem to indicate that. It is more likely that Paul is instructing us on how we are to respond when our emotions of anger develop inside us. When we start feeling the burn inside us, Paul is saying, hold on a second. In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, you feel it burning. The furnace is getting hot. Do not sin. So how in the world do we do this? Right? You're probably going, okay, well, that's, that's, that's a great biblical principle. How in the heaven do we do this? Because here's the reality. Maybe, maybe a good way to, to look at this is maybe we need to kind of reference werewolf movies. Some of you are going, what? Yeah, you know, like Teen Wolf with Michael J. Fox? Or maybe, maybe the Twilight Saga or the American Werewolf in London? How did all these, these people who recognized that they're a werewolf, they knew that things would trigger them, what did they do? They isolated themselves. Or they tied themselves to a tree. Maybe, maybe what we need to do with, as Christians is find a good, strong, uh, and an extra large order of duct tape. 
And when we get anger, we duct tape ourselves to trees. Maybe we duct tape our mouth. Maybe we duct tape our hands. Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe that would fix our anger and how we respond. Or maybe, for some of you, you're going, nah, that won't work. That's not very practical. Maybe we need to go on Amazon and just get like uh, really strong electrodes. And we give other people the button, you know? And whenever, whenever we are uh, acting out in anger, the other people take the electrodes and, and, and you are brought to your knees in humility. Maybe that's the way. Okay, so I'm, I'm joking. This is not, but something severe has got to be done, right? With our anger. Because every one of us struggles with controlling our anger. I think the most severe and important thing you can do is to grow like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, we find this Pharisee who is, who is praying and hands lifted up and eyes to heaven and praying on the street corner. But it's contrasted by the tax collector. Do you remember how he seems? Our anger says, always says, well, I am right, I am righteous, and everybody else is wrong. That's what our anger kind of says out loud. But the tax collector, the tax collector doesn't ha seem to have this same kind of confidence. In fact, he says, I am wronger than anyone else. I am just, I am, what does he do? He, does, he can't even lift up his eyes. He beats his chest, and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, because I am a sinner. It recognizes this tax collector, and also for us in our anger, we need to recognize that we are the chief of sinners. So how do we control our anger? It starts with us recognizing our own hearts. What is causing this anger inside of me? What, what have they tapped, what idol have they tapped on and made me feel angry, infuriated? Dealing with anger is important because you will never be able to resolve conflict biblically or effectively, if anger is not in check. Never. If your anger is not in check, you will never be able to resolve a conflict. Being countercultural when it comes to conflict will never happen without getting a hold of the issue of anger, without paying attention to your heart first. Pride and anger must be in check for biblical resolution to happen. Here's the third commitment we have got to make. We must resolve issues quickly. You see that in verse 27, right? The final point is probably the most important for us to hear. It is for me, because honestly, when it comes to conflict, I run for the hills. I hate conflict. I hate any kind of tension just ask my family. I hate it. I hate it. I'd much rather just 
kind of pat it down and, oh, everybody's happy. And I never really address it. And so probably the most common area in which conflict resolution breaks down is a failure to act decisively. In other words, most of the problem with conflict resolution is an unwillingness to do anything with it. Doing nothing actually does something. If you read on in verse 27, to reinforce this, Paul, Paul says, give no opportunity to the devil. There is a real sense that unresolved issues open the door for further and bigger issues. Hear that. If you don't address it, you know what it's going to do? It's going to snowball. And it is going to result in you leaving a marriage, leaving a workplace, leaving a church. Unresolved issues only snowball. Believers in Jesus should be motivated towards conflict resolution because we see life. We see life through a different lens. For instance, we understand the ultimate cause of sinful conflict. We, we, we've read this in James. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so what do you do? You murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so what do you do? You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Or, and we understand the beauty and the, the possibility of peace as God's people. Romans 5 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So the Bible calls us to have a bent towards action when it comes to dealing with conflict. Believers in Jesus who understand the cause and the ultimate solution to conflict, who have tasted the beauty of peace with God, should long for peace to reign in their relationships with people. Peace should be our main priority. So we need to be determined not to allow issues in our lives to fester. Don't let them fester. And I would urge you to love peace, to love it for all the God-centered, Jesus-exalting reasons that the Bible gives us. So through this commitment to truth, to, to be sinfully angry and to resolve issues quickly, the stage is set for the great conflict resolution and a great opportunity to demonstrate how the gospel really works. Think about it. Think about what would happen if Missio Dei Church was filled to overflowing with every one of you being committed to breathing out grace. That's the first thing that comes through your head. You are breathing out grace. 
You know your relationships aren't perfect, but they are marked with the beautiful ability to bring resolution where there was once conflict. So what do we do with this conflict? I want to give you some real practical action steps related to conflict. What do you do about conflict first? I want you to actually see conflict as an opportunity. This is something that I have to work on. I look as, have to look at conflict as an opportunity. It, it, it isn't necessarily, conflict isn't necessarily evil or sinful. Sometimes, friends, conflicts simply take place because there's misunderstandings. And sometimes there's a, maybe a simple lack of uh, communication. Or maybe there were different assumptions of what was happening on. And other times, conflicts happen because of a difference in values or a difference in goals or interests or opinions. Maybe you see the world differently. Or, or maybe in a world where there is actually limited resources, limited time, limit, limited money, limited energy, there is bound, because of that, it is bound to have conflicts. It's going to occur. So the problem is not always the cause. The problem is usually what happens next. So I would like you to see that conflict is, is not intrinsically bad, but it can be an opportunity. You even see that in the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there was a difference uh, between the people going on in the church at Corinth. There was a difference uh, that led to a conflict regarding the Lord's table. And Paul said that the situation was actually an opportunity to demonstrate maturity and genuineness. So Paul didn't look at it as a, an opportunity to shame one side or the other side. He said, listen, this is actually an opportunity for us to grow. So I, I want you to change what you see when you see a conflict. I want you to see it as an opportunity for you to grow, an opportunity for you to practice humility, an opportunity to help someone else grow, an opportunity for you both to glorify God. So no matter what happens in that situation, you can always glorify God. Here's the second thing. You can choose to overlook the, what's the last word? The offense. You can choose to overlook the offense. Now, some of us in this room, everything is a 10. Everything is a 10. From adultery to a, mm, you didn't listen very well to me. Everything feels like a big, big number. But conflict is a natural part of a fallen world. And most of our time, our, our practice should be to overlook an offense. And some of you are going, well, sounds like, Paul, you're just kind of being, being weak on this because you don't, like, you don't like conflict. You already admitted that. Well, let me just open the words of Scripture to you. The Bible calls us to deal with minor offenses by overlooking them in love. Listen, some of you. All of you, those who have ears, let them hear. Proverbs 19 says this, good sense 
makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It's his glory to overlook an offense. First uh, Peter 4, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Or Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in a, in a bond of peace. Or, or Colossians 3, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the overarching tone of our lives should be one of love towards one another, where we bear all things, we believe all things, we hope all things, we endure all things. Overlooking a minor offense is more than just passive, aggressive way of dealing with conflict. It is saying, it's not, overlooking an offense is not just not saying anything. It's the active process which is inspired by God's mercy through the gospel. It means that you treat the person as if they have never hurt you. As though you've, you've already forgiven them. Now there's some conflicts that should not be covered and addressed in the same way. Some. When, when offense is dishonoring to God, when offense is, is damaging and constantly damaging a relationship, if, if some, somebody is hurting somebody or is destructive, something must be done. But my friends, not every situation needs to be, hey, we need to sit down and have coffee. We need to bring the elders in on this one. I can't believe you did this. After a while, you are going to exhaust everybody in the church. Not everything is a battle to be fought. Sometimes we dismiss the offense and just say, we have different values. I love them. Here's the third thing. We confront with the goal of reconciliation. If the offense is such that it cannot or should not be overlooked, then the Bible clearly tells us we all have an obligation to try and rescue the person or the relationship. But how do we do that? How do we move into that, 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 that category of rescue? Well, it first starts off with this. Right preparation. It's important that every confrontation be predicated with personal examination first. It starts with my heart. We need to ask ourselves some important questions like, is my attitude right? Do I know all the facts? Have I tried to see this from their vantage point? What is my contribution to the problem? Is now the right time? What outcome would be right? The failure to prepare means that you're really not interested in a solution. 
You just want to vent. Here's, here's the second thing. So it starts off with the right preparation, then it goes to the, the right process. Matthew 18, 15 to 17 clearly tells us that there's an important process that we must all follow. It begins with a one-on-one conversation. If you ever come to me and just say, do you know what Kenny Vanderbilt did? He did this to me. I'm going to say, shut your mouth and go talk to Kenny Vanderbilt. And so should all of you. If anybody causes a hurt, a, a pain, it requires, it is scripturally mandated in conflict resolution that you go, you first go to the other person. And the tone should be that of love and concern and tentativeness. And this happen, this step is not just a one step, well, they didn't listen to me. This is, a, uh, it sounds like that in scripture. First go to them one-on-one. This, this might be a, 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 a multiple month kind of thing where you are constantly sitting down for coffee over breakfast in a, in a home, in a living room and having this conversation and just like, can, can I plead my heart with you? Can I plead? This, this is damaging and, and I want to show you with the mirror of scripture and how, how what I have done to cause this and what, what, what I have received on my end. And time after time, we are sitting down and we are pleading with one another. With, with the tone of love. And if after repeated times of one-on-one conversations, if a person fails to listen, others are brought into the equation. Not for you to say, you see, they saw it too. If that's the case, then you, you're probably the wrong party. Your heart is wrong. They also have the same tone and, and, and love and concern for both parties that are in the room and just saying, hey, we're, we're seeing this in both of you. Well, we want to mediate this conversation because there's something unhealthy in both of you and we want you to be reconciled. And the final step is ultimately that of telling it to the church body. And just for the record, that is not gossip. That is not you saying, so we went through step one and two. I got an announcement. That is the command to go to the elders. Your God-ordained men that you have put into place, and you allow them to resolve the issue. In your membership vows, you have promise to submit to the authority of the elders. They are the, if you will, for this church, the Supreme Court. And we adjudicate that. We, we act as judges, if you will, representing Christ to you. But the goal is always restoration. Always restoring a relationship. So if I could give you three words to think about in this, this right process is loving. We do this lovingly. We do this humbly. And we do this relentlessly. And please remember, in 
some of us who love conflict and love to step into situations, remember this. It is not your job to bring conviction. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. If you need a proof text, please see 2 Timothy 2.25. It is not your job to be to convict the heart. That is only the work of the Holy Spirit. So here's the, the final thing. There is a right response. Choosing the right response. If a person responds with repentance and, and seeks your forgiveness, it is important that you understand what real forgiveness looks like. Ken Sandy lists four promises that are made in granting somebody forgiveness. Listen to him carefully. One, I promise I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring this up again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this. And I will not let this stand between us. If you say, I forgive you, you are choosing in that moment not to dwell on it, not to bring it up, not to use it as a weapon later on, not to talk about it with other people, and not to let it, that incident to stand in, the be, in between. Ken Sandy and their, the Peacemakers came out with a, a book, a kid's version called The Young Peacemaker. And it has a little poem in it. Feels a little cheap, a little kiddish, but this is what it says. Good thought. Hurt you not. Gossip never. Friends forever. But that's the goal, isn't it? In other words, granting forgiveness means that you will treat people as if they never hurt you. It means that while you may never be able to forget what happened, because God gave us a memory, right? You make the choice not to hold it against them. It means that you choose to release the debt that their actions created. And it means that you will work to repair and rebuild the relationship. That's the goal. Friends, that, the world has nothing on what the church has. They love conflict. They, they build off of conflict. Businesses are, are made bigger and relationships. Man, people go from one relationship to next relationship. The church should have something beautiful that we hold out and just say, but look what Jesus has done to me. And because of what Jesus has done to me, look what this means for all my relationships. There is nothing sweeter than resolving conflicts God's way. Nothing. And let me tell you that there are few things more painful than relationships that are characterized by a lack of honesty, long-held anger, and years of unresolved conflict. I want you to be free. Not, not free from conflict, but free from the bondage of continually living in unresolved conflict. I want you to have relationships that are characterized by love that can only come from an understanding from the cross of Christ. That's what I want you to have. 
I want you to be the, listen, I want you to be the kind of people who breathe grace. That's what I want. The kind of people who are continually drawing on the goodness and the power of Christ. And then then you, you bring His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, His strength, His wisdom into the conflicts of your daily life. God wants you to be like this. Friends, is that not a beautiful picture of what the cross looks like? Are we not to be a display of that watching world? That is our ultimate goal. And my guess, if you know Jesus, you want to be like this too. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, would you apply this word to our hearts?